Hello, and welcome to Art Speaks, a new arts and culture podcast from Philips. I'm your host, Arnold Lehman. After a half century in the art world, mostly as a museum director in Baltimore and in Brooklyn, and five years at Phillips as senior advisor, which means someone who is old, knows a lot of people, and isn't shy about voicing opinions, hosting a series like this seems like a perfect fit for me. So for each episode, like today's, I'll be at my desk having a socially distant conversation with friends from the art world, artists, dealers, museum directors and curators, collectors, and critics, to learn from them how and what they are doing and what is on their minds today and for tomorrow. So let's get started with our conversation with my friend, filmmaker and Warhol protege, Vincent Fremont. Give me a one minute bio, starting 25 years, 20 years after you were born, because I know when you were very young, you were very engaged. Well, I came to New York when I was 18. Met Andy Warhol within uh, three or four days of my other two friends. We were a group called The Babies. We were a conceptual group before the real band that came to The Babies. We were told, or uh, described, I should say, by Danny Fields, who was um, the manager of the Ramones and other bands. We were the group that came from nowhere that did nothing. Because we didn't play instruments. We just looked like rock and roll. We had long hair, very androgynous looking, L.A. kind of look. And then uh, I met Andy within, like I said, three or four days of being in Manhattan. And little did I know that I'd be working with him and for him for the rest of his life. I was vice president of Andy Wall Enterprises. I produced all of Andy's television work that we did together and directed some of it in the early days. And then um, he was like a second father to me. And I spent my adult life really learning. So I always say I went to the University of Andy Warhol. I would think that that was pretty uh, an amazing university uh, to go to. It certainly uh, covered contemporary life during that period like no other university could. Um, I mean, it was. It was the center of contemporary life. Because people who you would read about actually showed up to Andy's studio for lunch and, you know, different people from Europe and all walks of life and mostly creative. I mean, whether it was, uh, you know, rock musicians, actors, movie stars, uh, uh, you know, you name it, they showed up over time because it was the hub of energy and creativity in Manhattan. If you could just look back at all those days, most of which I'm sure were incredibly engaging and exciting and different, is there a day that sticks out in your memory that you'll never forget for whatever reason you're going to explain to me right now. Andy's death was the one that I'll never forget, that's for sure. We walked into that one. Um, I don't know, I mean, there were, there were many, many different occasions at first. I mean, believe it or not, when I first started working with Andy, and that was at a freelance basis in 69, I was actually shy, so I was very quiet. But you're still shy and quiet. Oh, that's true, but I can Maybe talk. you've regressed. Maybe I have regressed. That's a good idea. No, no, but it's, it's, uh, I mean, the time that uh, Jim Morrison came up to Andy's studio on his way to Paris, uh, this is after Altamont, and this is like, so this is 69, 19, sometime in six, late 69, the fall. 
um, that was the first time I met a rock and roll star who I was a, you know, a big fan of as a kid in San Diego. Um, you know, like one other pop star, Mick Jagger was a good friend of uh, Andy's and of Fred's who we saw a lot of in uh, the early seventies and out in Montauk and both in, in the city, uh, having lunch with Alfred Hitchcock, with Andy, uh, did, we did an interview with him, which was, you know, I never thought I would meet Alfred Hitchcock and have lunch even. And then ask, and I figured out because I was looking at recently the, the interview that was published in interview magazine. But I, when I was reading it, I realized I was here as this, I was like my early twenties. I'm asking Alfred Hitchcock how he dealt with his actors. I was aware of his films. And I think that's why Andy brought me along on the interview because I, he knew I was well-versed in film of old films and uh, Hitchcock certainly was a big fan of. I don't know what happened. I had, I think I had the magazine and kept the magazine probably from within a month or two when it first started publishing. 1969 came out. Yeah, well then probably right then or the beginning of 1970 and I had them through many moves, and that pile, that box, that carton, kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's one of the few things that I always kept from one move to another. And I, I don't remember when I stopped getting it, but what I do remember, which is really a tragedy, is that when we moved from Baltimore to New York, that box went missing. And my hope was always that someone who loved Andy stole the boxes of magazines. Was it, was it was on a truck or something? Yeah, a moving truck. Oh, and yeah. it's... it's Because you remember the first, the first issue of Interview Magazine was a quarterfold, you know, designed after like Rolling Stone. And it was Agnes Varda's Lion's Love was the cover. Um, I remember that. I, I remember that distinctly because I was there when that first issue came out. And then I had to leave New York for about almost a year to deal with the draft that was going on. I was in that first lottery. So it took me roughly a year to get back to Manhattan because I didn't have any money and I reconnected. So I come to New York. I came to New York August of 1969, left New York in January of 1970, and returned back to New York for good December 1970. So then I reconnected, and that was I was a lifer from then on, as Bridget and Lynn and I say about each other. But worthwhile. I mean, every day must have been quite extraordinary. I feel very lucky. I got to work with one of the great artists of the 20th century. I mean, it was um, he gave once he trusted you. He he gave you so much leeway to do things that you wanted to do, but you just had to remember he he was very he wasn't controlling, but he he knew what he wanted, and he knew how to critique positively. He, did, he actually did really good uh, positive criticism as opposed to negative. But I learned a lot from him, both in art history, art artists. Uh, but he asked me to start a video uh, uh, studio, and I did in 1979. The whole, the, most of the 70s I videotaped early with Michael Netter, who was doing it before me. He left, Michael left in 1974. And then I took over in uh, Andy and I collaborated on soap opera ideas through the 70s. He didn't want anything on cable at that point until he thought we would be ready. It's a long story, but by 1979, 
he invests in a broadcast quality camera. I find Don Monroe to direct and we started the show called Fashion and then went from fashion to, which was Andy's concept, one half hour of one fashion designer, one person involved in fashion. Probably one of my favorite shows in that early period was Jan Vreeland and Henry Gelbseller, which we titled The Empress and the Commissioner. Appropriately so. Yeah, and then we realized, you know, fashion is a broader, can be a broader definition, so we call it Andy World's TV, and then progressed through two, three years of that, and then eventually at the last, we had Andy World's 15 Minutes, loosely based on Andy's most off-used quote. Right, exactly. I met, I met him only on several occasions. Um, once uh, when he was at uh, the Baltimore Museum for his exhibition, and, uh, and everyone said that he was so quiet and shy around people. I've never seen anyone put more gusto into signing t-shirts for a mob of people lined up than Andy did. He was very good about giving autographs to people because he actually liked to ask people for autographs. Uh, the first MTV awards, video awards, the, I think the parties with, was the Tavern on the Green. My wife Shelly and I went with Andy and we were standing in a hallway before the, one of the dining rooms. And so Andy was going, oh, could we'll get their autographs, you know, different rock musicians, different people. So he, he genuinely liked doing that. And so he was also very generous in return to people who, he would ask people who were just starting out, it kept, we hadn't been famous yet, he'd ask for their autographs. So we were on the MTV boat for the anniversary of the Statue of Liberty, 100th anniversary. And he made himself available to all the 200 fans that won a contest to be on this boat. And he worked, he and I, you know, I was working on getting an MTV show. And he also signed, you know, uh, jeans, anything anybody brought to him. His book signings, people would bring other books. And of course, Campbell's Soup Cans, because they right. would have right. all the Campbell's Soup Cans from the supermarkets in the neighborhood. But he was very patient with that. And he preferred to do that than being on a television talk show, because he was too shy to do that. The other two times, uh, well, two of the other times that I met him, both were with Jean-Michel Basquiat. Uh -huh. um, once um, I was on Fred Wiseman's boat where um, Andy and Jean-Michel were celebrating Fred's birthday. And where was that? Well, now you're gonna, I think it was in Washington actually. Okay. Um, and the second, well no, the first time was at I think Mr. Chow. New York City. In New York City, where there was a, um, it was certainly a strange um, lunch that uh, Jean-Michel was at least one of the stars of, but Andy was there, and but very quiet. Both he and, and Jean-Michel said almost not a word. Um, everyone asking questions constantly. Uh, but um, but no very little response, which I thought was was incredibly smart because the poor man was being peppered with all sorts of um, basically nonsensical questions and answered nothing. That had to have been what, in the early eighties, nineteen eighties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that that in itself, Andy had been doing interviews, you know, for you know since the early sixties. And he did those wonderful ones, you see, where he, that one with Ivan Karp, 
where the journalist keeps asking questions and he, he keeps asking, he doesn't say a word and or <laughs> ask, repeat, repeat the question. Andy's public persona, he worked really hard on in a sense, but it was not to talk very much and just be, be to play the, the almost deaf mute, but he wasn't. He was the, op, making observations constantly. He was very astute in what he saw. He could make comments later. But those of us who were close to him, anybody he trusted, he would be um, actually quite a good conversationalist, but in an atmosphere like that, he wouldn't be. He would not be talkative. The John Michel picked up on something like that as well. But Andy had the you know uh, you know he was tired of by the by the you know the eight by the eighties he was really tired of doing interviews because most of the interviews were the same old questions over and over again, and or that they, they, sometimes the journalists got lazy and they wouldn't. They would read other interviews. They wouldn't ask new questions, so they kind of built on the old questions. So uh, there are obviously exceptions to that. Arthur Danto's uh, interview he did in the like '85. Uh, you know, so it was rare to Donna DeSalvo who got Andy to talk about the 1950s art he was making. Uh, literally, a few, maybe two or three years before he died, so he rarely talked about the past like that. And people didn't understand he had a great sense of humor, and when he was Putting them on, they didn't get it either, generally. Well, let's put Andy aside for the moment. And I'd love to know what you've been using most of your time for in the last couple of years. What projects are front and center? Well, I've been back and forth trying to get my memoir started again, which I got writer's block. I got to get the right voice in my voice, the right structure. I have two book proposals. Neither are ready to go. Uh, I've been working on curating some exhibitions. Uh, I did two last year, um, the New York Academy of Art. I did a drawing, a kind of encyclopedic drawing exhibition of Andy's drawings from virtually roughly 1949 to 1986. And I did a second version. It was called Andy Warhol by Hand. I co-curated with Dave Kratz, the president of the New York Academy. And then uh, I did a Andy Warhol by Hand part two at Speroni Westwater a few months later. Because uh, I don't think that people really have seen or haven't seen Andy's drawings that much, especially the esoteric ones that were from his drawing books and sketchbooks. The fact that he was a, a person where here we are, we're talking about him again. Somebody who really as a young artist did walk or travel and, and be, have drawing books with him at all times. And I work, I'm working with some other artists at this point, you know, with commissions. Uh, Uga Rondononi, and uh, who I think is terrific. Um, I'm sorry about uh, jo John Journal's passing last October, because he was so terrific. And I had John join me on a John Journal join me on a panel at the New York Academy, because John certainly knew Andy from the early days, 1962 to 63. So um, now I'm always looking around. I mean, at different artists and young artists. I give advice to artists when they need it, if they want it, whether it's worth anything. But um, both my wife and I still you know, follow all the new art that we can. Do you give advice to old museum directors? Uh, well, what would you like to <laughs> <laughs> No, it's funny you brought up David Crabb's name. He lives around the corner uh, from us here in Brooklyn. Oh, we never, ever see him. He's such a good guy. Yeah, he is. And we, he, he, he redid that whole house. And we had dinner last fall over there to see the new place. It was he did a terrific job. But I thought I thought that the when they asked me to curate that show, I really felt that 
they had to be just drawings and nothing else because that's what the school is about is learning how to draw and andy was one of the founders uh, with uh, other other people when it first started he really wanted young artists to learn how to draw the human form and i remember him talking to kenny sharf and to keith herring and jean michel uh, about that he did take them to the new york academy so he was serious about that but he just wanted that kind of ground groundwork so you can go on to doing other things he was classically trained so artists and you know it's just it's, it's, it's interesting to see all the influences uh you know i enjoyed seeing peter saul's exhibition at the new museum which um i think is fantastic uh, it's too bad it's closed with all the other great exhibitions that have closed that i didn't get to see or did see thankfully but well i'm only hoping and i know a few of them have done this i'm only hoping that with this social distancing moment that the museums and it's i know how difficult it is because i was there but i'm hoping that there'll be at least a couple of weeks or a month to extend these amazingly great shows that are all over new york and all over the country for another month before we were all uh, um made to just uh think of going to see them no you're absolutely right i mean there's you know i miss the the ones of the whitney you know the, the modern i mean because you think you're going to be the next weekend you're going to do the next day uh so yeah it is it's very disappointing for the curators oh my gosh museums i mean how crushing uh the i didn't see the studio 54 exhibition in the brooklyn museum i didn't we didn't go to the opening because that was the beginning of the fear of being in lots of crowds you know, I was planning to go, you know, in the next couple of weeks after that, but that didn't happen. Um, no, it's a shame. And, you know, going back to Peter Saul's show, at least uh, there was the opening and all that, and then he got to stay open for a little bit. But these these are all shows that are important. The, the Copley, the Bill Copley show at the Casman Gallery, we had like, what, one week or two weeks? So I hope the galleries and the institutions, like you said, could stay, you know, bring them up. And, of course, there's the Tate Modern that closed their Warhol show. Well, at least with most of the larger museums and probably all of the university museums, at least there'll be a catalog. Um, That's true. Which is not true probably of many, many of the majority of museums in the country because the catalogs are so expensive. Um, but the galleries, of course, don't do catalogs for the most part. Well, they should because that's a, that's a whole thing that carries them. So that keeps the history going. That, it's, it's key. I mean, what would we know if people didn't write things down and take photographs? I mean, we'd, we'd be so far behind in our knowledge if museums didn't do that. Well, you know that directly having been the director of the Baltimore Museum of Art and then the Brooklyn Museum of Art. I mean, that, I met you first when you were with, still with um, Baltimore and you know, with Brenda Richardson. Uh, it was not until then that we met. I don't remember I meeting you until before that. I don't know. If, see, I don't remember meeting you in the early '80s if you were in New York. We could have, but you know, I don't register. A, you know, I probably wasn't at that lunch at uh, Mr. Chow's. But you know, I used to work uh, going further back. I used to work for Henry Gelsauer, so I would trek to some of those events that Henry would say rarely, but he did say it, you know, why don't you come along? Um, so 
that always was very interesting. And I was sure I probably met you at that point. But we did, we did certainly meet when we uh, were fortunate enough to acquire um, all of those works by Andy, the late, so many late works by Andy for the Baltimore Museum. I think we purchased, I don't know, 15 or 16 works. Yeah, because I remember when you and Brenda went to see the, the, the Andy Warhol Abstract Show in uh, Basel. Right. Oh, right. Oh, you've got a good memory, a really good memory. And that's when Brenda got you to convince you to purchase what the beautiful gold and black Rorschach that it went to Baltimore. That that's was true. That's true as well. So you, you, I became to know you in and around that particular time after Andy had died. But he, now that you mentioned Henry Gessler, we had to have met because if I, I probably wasn't at that lunch because I was probably working back down at the, his studio and I was also producing TV shows and doing things. So I, you know, I, I went in and out of the lunches at the studio. So it's not that you sat down to each and every one of them. Well, I remember it. I remember it so well because Brenda and I were just um, so at that point um, so committed to acquiring all of these works from Baltimore because we kept thinking of it. I mean, you know, our our great hero uh, artist in Baltimore was always Matisse, right. and I must have said a thousand times to a thousand people. You know, we go from Matisse right to Warhol in terms of being, you know, who was a genius at the beginning of the century and who was really the genius at the end of the century. And mm -hmm. if, we could, if we could develop both, um, it, would be, it would be extraordinary for the museum and the community. Um, and so <laughs> the only issue we had to face, even though... Um, the estate was incredibly generous in terms of what the what the cost was to museums. Right. Um, we still faced a um, um, a board of trustees. I remember who, <laughs> who were not entirely sold and are acquiring fifteen or sixteen Warhols for, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, um, a price well under a million dollars. Yeah, I would think you're right because the uh, American Museum program, it was the values were 50% off book value from Christie. So that those book values were pretty light at the time. So you got some late paintings that were, you know, bought for basically nothing. I had, I had already bought um, one of the Last Suppers. Right, I was gonna say, you got the Last Supper auction. Right. And that, of course, caused an amazing amount of grief in Baltimore. I remember because was there a deaccession de of a Rothko or something? Does that, does that ring a bell? No, 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 no. Um, I, raised, I raised the money for that. Okay, Only good. recently are they deaccessioning. Well, I know the recent deaccessioning thing, which we won't go into that. No, but, no. Um, <laughs> but I remember you guys got that beautiful Last Supper at auction. Uh, that which was a very smart move at that point because you know there that was the only painting we put up at auction at that time because it was a settlement with the Yolos estate. Oh, I remember very well leaving uh, two days I think later I had a trustee from Baltimore 
uh, for lunch at Da Silvano. And I was walking out and Leo stopped me and said, there was a very good bye, Arnold, and pointed to two people he was having lunch with and saying, here are your competitors. Um, and I can't, they're both European um, uh, museum directors. I don't remember now who they were. Um, but uh, if you recall Sotheby's, it was at the very, almost the very end of the auction. And there were a lot of other major Warhols before that. Right. And anyone who went to see that last supper, um, I went there and I think at some point, and they only had fluorescent lights on, and you can just imagine what that color looked like under pure fl fluorescent light. Right. But um, whatever, we were determined to have that in have that in Baltimore. Well, it was. I think it was. A, it was a great. You know, Leo, as in Castelli, was absolutely right. Give full names sometimes because a lot of people don't know who these people are anymore, which is another reason why they have to be talked about. Because if, if you're interested in 20th century art history, uh, people's names like Henry Geltzeller and uh, you know Fred Hughes, who was Andy's main business manager and uh, was you know amazing with with Andy in the 70s and into the 80s. Well, I think to push that in the right direction, I think you have to get working back working on your memoir. Well, I, do, I do too. How far along is that? And will I get an autographed copy? If I'm ever so lucky to get a publishing deal, absolutely. It's my point of view of my time with Andy, which was roughly 19, you know, had the second half of 1969 up until the, the morning he died. So, and then myself and Fred Hughes and uh, Andy's brother, John Warhol, were in his will and instructed to create the foundation for the advance, advancement of the visual arts. So even it, it, after he died, I was working for him and with him. Um, I spent the most of my life since he's died is protecting his legacy and- uh, I think you've done a great job, but we want that memoir. Everybody wants it. I think there are thousands of people out there clamoring for it. And said, you're, so, you're so generous. It's probably an audience of 10. But I have spent time, along with Bob Colicello and others, to do panels and to talk about what it was like then. And your panel was, I thought, was so terrific at, at Phillips to do that whole series when you bring people in to talk about art and everything else. But people need to hear firsthand what an artist was like as opposed to talking about history of what the paintings are about. It's also people want to know what would it like to be with this person walking the earth at that particular moment in time. Uh, and it's only the people who are with them can really tell the story correctly, I hate to say, because other people read what they've, you know, they read and a lot of it's not correct. And then you have this kind of uh, abomination of, of stories. But uh, so is, you know, the, as time goes on, it gets harder and harder because there's less and less of us around. But um, well, Vincent, sign me up for six books. I'm right there for the first half I'm dozen. Taking it, I'm taking it down right now. Right, put it down. I'll put it. I'll even send you a down payment so you don't forget. Yeah, but thank you for the encouragement. But I do need to, to get back to it. Yeah, I've written a lot of catalog essays over the years, but, uh, and I can bring those, I, you know, that set, usually sets the tone of when the work was done. 
And um, anyway, but you're right. I have to, you're making me feel guilty. I've got to get back writing. So many interesting people that were around, they're no longer here. All the creative people who we lost in the AIDS epidemic and creative people we're losing today with this coronavirus, but there are all these people that, you know, were in the 70s and 80s who should still be alive aren't with us. And their stories have to be told or at least identify who they were so they're not forgotten because they added to the culture and flavor of New York City. Um, so it's really, I feel very, you know, I need to make sure that happens with other people. Wow. You have a, you have an important task and stop talking to me, get to your desk and do something right this afternoon. You got it. I'll call Shelly and tell her not to feed you a meal until you have a few words down more than you had before. Okay. Perfect. Anyway, thank you for inviting me into your room. Oh, I'm absolutely delighted. Absolutely delighted. Thank you, Vincent. Okay. And I hope to see you soon. Say yeah. hi to Shelly for me. And you to Pamela. Well, take okay. care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That was my great friend, Vincent Fremont. I hope you will join me the next time on Art Speaks when senior curator at the Brooklyn Museum, Eugenie Tsai, will be with us.